Welcome to today's episode of Building Builders, a podcast made for contractors. In this episode, we are joined by Mac Plovey to talk about his experience in the mining industry as a geologist, running D10 dozers, and how the industry is underappreciated. We hope you enjoy. Uh, hey, Mac. Um, awesome to, uh, to meet you. I've really been looking forward to this chat. I appreciate you uh, having me on. And uh, usually I'm on the, the other one on the other end, interviewing people for our podcast. But uh, it's good to be on this side of the uh, microphone <laughs> for once. So glad to be here. And uh, thanks again for having me. Maybe you can teach me a thing or two uh, uh, over on this end. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Mac, you know, maybe just to get started, uh, uh, would love it if you could kind of share with everyone uh, what it is that uh, that you do. Sure, absolutely. I'm a chief dirt enthusiast, so kind of owner-operator, accountant, photographer, social media guy over here at uh, Earth Movers Media. We essentially help companies, you know, construction, mining, demolition, anything dirt or heavy equipment related. We help them kind of tell their story a bit. So I do a lot of work in the field, working with, with companies, taking photographs, capturing their story, writing articles, and kind of helping translate and transcribe that story in the field into uh, marketing material and, and helping society better understand construction, better understand mining. And I also uh, spend part of my uh, life at the Bruce Jack Mine in Northern BC. So I work up there as a uh, underground geologist and uh, I do both. So very passionate about mining and also uh, very passionate about uh, storytelling in the industry. So Awesome. Sounds super interesting. Can't wait to, uh, to learn, uh, learn a little more about all of that. Um, maybe before we dive in uh, too far, I have a note here that uh, – you had your fifth birthday at a, at a finning cat dealership. Uh, is that right? Sure did. Sure did. That was, I guess that was the highlight of my childhood. There was uh, uh, many, but <laughs> my story kind of begins, um, dad and grandpa worked for finning. So finning, right. uh, you guys are out east, you have Tormont cat. So we have finning. Right. I think the boundaries kind of around the Manitoba border, somewhere in there where they yeah. go from finning to Tormont. But anyways, uh, grandpa worked for them for 45 years. So before Finning was Finning, it was R. Angus. And he worked for then and then then worked for Finning. And then dad worked for Finning for 15 years. So roughly 65 years combined. I'm sorry, 20, 20 or 25 years. So roughly 65 years combined. So I kind of grew up in a family that was very involved in obviously yellow heavy equipment. So Caterpillar and construction, forestry, mining, that sort of thing. So Growing up, you know, I had, we worked, dad was at, uh, in Campbell River, Terrace, and then Vernon. There was different finning branches there. So I ended up having my fifth birthday at, uh, finning Terrace. And me and all my friends, we got down there and, and dad brought out, uh, I believe it was a 322B at the time and a 730 rock truck. And, uh, that was, that was a birthday party. We had presents and cake and he took us for rides in the rock truck and let us run the excavator. So, at an early age, I was kind of really exposed to heavy equipment, you know, working with your hands, being around industry folk. So I think that's kind of helped shape who I am today. But, but going on from, from that as I kind of grew up a bit, and then we moved to uh, Vernon, BC. I'm out here in British Columbia. Um, Dad was working as a mechanic at the time at Finning. And so what would happen is equipment would come in and Finning might do a rebuild on an engine or, a, or undercarriage or something. And then machine would go out of the shop and they need to put, you know, five or 10 hours on it to, to prove that, you know, the repairs 
is up to standard before it goes out to the customer. So guess who got a cat key and kind of got let loose in the yard to like drive bulldozers around and kind of run some hours up on stuff to make sure it's, it's up to standard before the customer gets it. That was me. So imagine a 12 or 14 year old kid just kind of, you know, knows how to run equipment, but just driving equipment around, you know, putting hours on things. Uh, it was, it was a very cool experience. So a lot of that has helped shape kind of who I am uh, today, kind of from, from being born all the way up to uh, uh, a young age. So I'm not sure how far you want me to go into my full story, or if you just want kind of the young childhood experiences that, that really sparked my interest in this stuff. Yeah. Thanks. No, I mean, I think that's uh that, that was exactly the answer I was looking for. And uh, you know, love the, the comment of uh, a 12 year old having a cat key. How awesome is that? You know, I mean, yeah, if you've got a cat key, you can run anything. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Most, uh, most 12 year olds wouldn't know about, you know, the cat key and how it can run everything, but you had your own. That's, uh, yeah. that's super cool. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely, uh, pretty jealous there. I know I was, I was operating a, a, a farm tractor at, at that age, but, uh, hadn't quite got a cat key that <laughs> a couple more years later. Um, yeah. yeah, that's super cool. Um, so definitely sounds like that was, uh, uh, you know, some of those early experiences uh, inspired you to get in into this industry then? Yeah, it, it's not something that you can have a, an early experience like that and walk away from and just be like, oh, I'm going to be a realtor now or I'm going to be a, a waiter or something, right? Like it just kind of stays in your blood. And I always joke that you could cut me and I'd bleed yellow. So I'm a bit biased towards that flavor of, of equipment because I've got the family history with it because I've spent so much time around it. But right. it, it really did kind of cement that that passion at an early age, and that carries through with you um, as as you grow up. So, and kind of look at you know how it's transpired today. Now, working with a lot of companies, helping them share their story, having an appreciation and understanding and a passion for heavy equipment. What's going on? How are they doing it? The dirt moving side of things, the business side of things. It's all kind of built off of you know at a young age being exposed to that sort of stuff. So what inspired you to get into uh, geology, uh, go to school for this? That's another good story as well. Um, I can't remember the exact birthday, uh, but I got a gold pan for my birthday. And that was the time when um, some TV shows were out, you know, kind of featuring gold mining right. stuff. So I had some interest around it and got a gold pan. And, and I was like, Oh, this is kind of neat to try gold panning. So, and my first little flake. And I, I think at the time I needed really? a hand lens to see it. Like it was, it was microscopic, nothing, <laughs> nothing large, no picker or, or nugget or anything, but, uh, that, that got me hooked. And the thing I learned about, about gold, and you can ask any plaster miner or, or gold miner, hard rock gold miner, this is it's the yellow metal that, that drives you crazy. Once you see it, once you feel it, feel the weight of it, the texture, the different ways it can occur, whether it's in hard rock or, or plaster gold, which is gold panning. It really, right. really gets you hooked onto just that, that yellow metal. It's hard to describe until you've actually seen it. It's, it's, a, it's a quite a mysterious metal in that, in that sense. So got the gold pan and started gold panning and I was hooked. So I was, I was going to school at the time and I thought, okay, well, I'm going just for a Bachelor of Science. Like, okay, we really right. got to find some direction here. Okay, so I had kind of the early experience with equipment. How can I going to university, how can I then find something that's going to take me, keep me in line with that, that, that heavy equipment, mining, construction kind of things. And that was geology because geology is 
like engineering is, is used in, in mining when you're designing a mine or when you're drilling off a resource or something like that. So I went right into geology because of gold panning and uh, went to school for that. Got out of school um, with uh, just a basic four-year degree with a specialization in, in geology. And the first kind of kick at the can was, okay, well, gold panning was fun. How could we scale that? Well, let's try plaster mining. So that was the first kind of outside of school. I tried, me and three buddies, bought some equipment, pooled our money and, and went plaster mining in, uh, just outside of Cornell. So that was, that was really cool because that then allows you to take your school knowledge and apply it to real world knowledge. And kind of the short story on that was we ended up going broke because, well, I, in, in, in short, we we're kind of, we're idiots. So we didn't know what we were doing at the time. We were kind of learning, but uh, it was a really cool experience. It taught you a lot about kind of your first go at the, at, at business, first kind of try mining and, and really just getting out there and trying to learn, trying to like, throw an idea at the board and see if it works. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And that built into, then I went to the Yukon uh, plaster mining, again, just a bigger scale than what we do. And we had like, uh, gosh, like 20 ton excavators. And then you go to the Yukon, they've got, you know, 90 ton excavators and that. So it's just a bigger scale. So um, that was a lot of fun. Spent a lot of time in the Yukon just, just one summer. And uh was working on uh, Upper Duncan Creek, which is just outside of Keno City. If anyone knows the Yukon, you can either go up to Dawson or you can go out east, uh, eastward towards Keno. And uh, Keno was Upper Duncan and Granite Creek with a company called uh, Earth and Iron. So I was, I was kind of doing both up there. That was, for me, that was a really exciting time in my life because the Yukon's like kind of this wild west for mining, like especially plaster mining. Like there's, it's just kind of, you figure it out as you go. It's not like conventional publicly traded company mining. So yeah. for me, I was doing some geology. I was running equipment, you know, D10s, 365 excavator, which is 65 wow. ton machine, uh, 740 rock trucks. That was kind of the spread of the iron we had uh, up there with earth and iron. So I was doing that. I was helping work the plant. So in plaster mining, gold occurs in river gravels, right? And you pan yeah. it out using gravity. So the wash plant just essentially washes rock separates out mm -hmm. lighter materials from the heavier gold. So it was helping kind of design those and build those, operate those, and also help with the exploration side, the geology side. So where is, so we're mining at this area right now, pit A, where are we going to go next? Well, let's go explore. Let's use drilling. Let's use, in this case, we actually use some geophysics as well. So I'm mm -hmm. not sure if you want me to get too deep in the weeds with, with that. I'm happy to, to, to dive into that if you'd like I mean, uh, maybe let's just pause for a second because there's a lot of great stuff here and come back to sure. it. But, yeah. uh, um, if, I mean, it's a super interesting journey so far. You, you've, you've had your fifth birthday. <laughs> you're, you're now panning for, for gold. You're, uh, you're going to school. You've picked up your, your degree in geology. Uh, you've started a business. You're using like 20 ton excavators, um, uh, tons and tons of learning experience there. Uh, now all of a sudden you're way up north, uh, and you're operating, I think you just said D10, 65 ton excavators and, and yep. running, you know, the plant, uh, that's a, that's quite the learning curve. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, I, I guess you did have a, a cat key at, at the age of 12, but even still, I mean, uh, hopping into a D, D10 is, uh, uh, you know, nothing, uh, nothing to sneeze at. That's a, a pretty big deal. What was that like for the first time? That was cool. I, I ended up 
So I was out, out in one of our pits and we were doing an exploration pit and they had the 365 and the D10 there. The 365 was benching down to get down the pay gravel and the 10 was pushing yeah. waste away from the 365. So it was on mm-hmm. break and I said, like, I was just out there panning and kind of watching the progress of the pit. And I said, what would it take for me to jump in that 10 for a bit? I said, I've run smaller cats, six. He's like, oh, I'll show you. So I sat in there. He's like, here's the park break. Go at it. So he, wow. he let me run it on his coffee break. And then before I knew it, I was in there for a couple hours and he was off doing something else. But honestly, especially in, in the case of Plastermine and the Yukon, you just do it. You just learn. You just jump in. Hey, can I do this? Like so much opportunity and kind of my career so far has come from just asking, can I do this? Can we do yeah. that? Like, what would it take to do this? What kind of, you know, maybe you need training, but just jumping in it. It was cool to, to say the experience. Uh, I can't remember the specs. I think the it was D10R. I think it's like six, 585 or 600 horsepower. So it was, it, wow. it's a cool experience to be sitting in that, in that dozer. And, and I've always liked dozers since then, because it's all about horsepower and pushing. It's all about getting that horsepower to the ground, moving as much material as, as you can in front of your blade and uh, really using the tools that the tractor offers, which is ripping, pushing, um, that sort of thing. So right. it was a very cool experience and it was just cool just to be able to jump in it. And just say, yeah, give it a try. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a shot. So help paint this picture for me a little bit. Um, uh, what, what does the job site look like? Like how many people are up there? Where are you living? Uh, what does it look like? Sure. So the, the Yukon, so when we were on uh, Upper Duncan Creek, just outside of Keno City, it's actually quite funny. So Keno City is a small town. Uh, it's an old silver mining town, very historic legacy mining there. Um, there is an active underground hard rock mine there too now, but a lot of historic mining. So another kind of ghost town, but 15 people live there according to stats, Canada, that's the total population. (laughs) And our camp was 23 people. So we, by pure metrics, our camp was bigger than the city, which is quite funny, but (laughs) um, in in the camp, it was just a a series of trailers, like ACO trailers put together. You kind of have the kitchen, the washroom, that's where you live and sleep and and eat. And then the actual mine site was, um, we had our production setting, which was our sluice plants and our, our cut. And then we had some exploration teams going out with equipment and um, geophysics equipment and drills and whatnot to further define resources or find the next cut that we're going to now move the plant to or truck material from the cut to the plant. So it, it's quite remote, right. but uh, at the same time, you have all the qualities of living at home. You have a washroom, you have hot food, you have satellite, you have internet and, and, and cell phone. In that case, it was satellite based because we're so remote, right. but they try to make it as comfortable as you can. So you can spend the whole summer up there pretty much uh, the whole mining season from thaw to freeze. So. Okay. Awesome. That was going to be my next question. Like how, how long are you away from home? Um, but it, it kind of sounds like what, like six, eight months, something like that. Yeah, the Yukon, I mean, depending on when the thaw comes and when the freeze comes, it could, it can vary, but yeah, it's like five to seven months. That's all you get. And you have to go, you have to pretty much produce all your ounces in that short amount of time. And then also the same time be prepping for the next season. So you need to be stripping, you need to be reclaiming as you go. You need to be, if you're building a new plant, if you're permitting, it's kind of you have a short season, so you're pretty much working the whole season. You might get a couple of days off here and there. Uh, some, some camps do like a week off. Some do like a day off, like a Sunday off. Most do day shift, night shift. So day shift is pretty much 
stripping and hauling pay and running the plant, the night shift would be purely running the plant just to keep material moving um, through the plant and producing gold. So uh, 24-7, mining is a, a different world than uh, regular civilization. This podcast is sponsored by Dozer, an online marketplace for heavy equipment rentals across North America. Partnering with thousands of rental houses, Dozer provides contractors with access to local suppliers, transparent pricing, mobile ordering, and an industry-leading payment option of 0% interest for 60 days. Go to dozer.com to find your next heavy equipment rental. That's D-O-Z-R.com. So tell me more about your degree. Um, how how are you able to use it? Uh, and are, you know, most of the people uh, up at the camp, do they have a, a similar degree? Um, yeah, just interested to learn more how schooling uh, contributes here. Sure. In, in that case, there was a uh, so, bit of a backstory to this. Plaster mining typically isn't like normal mining companies. They don't really do a whole lot in terms of resource and exploration. They just do like test pits and they're like, oh, there's gold over here. We'll go mine this. Whereas a conventional mining company that's publicly traded has to define a resource through drilling and define the economics and disclose that to the public. Plaster mining has conventionally just been, well, there's historically gold on this creek and we're going to go do some test pits and find that, prove that there's gold in this creek and then we're just going to mine it. There's not the same systematic uh, mythology applied to define a resource and mine it. So earth and iron was a bit different. Like I said, most plaster miners just do test pits, maybe a bit of drilling. Earth and iron was using geophysics and whatnot, which required people like myself to have an underground or a background in uh, remote sensing and using those kind of tools and logging core from drills and whatnot to help them define a resource. So they were a bit, they had a, Dean had a different approach that not many plaster miners take. And that's what I always admired about, admired about him. And he brought on myself and two other um, geos uh, to help with exploration, to help with kind of that resource um, side of things, because he was really good at moving dirt and mining. He had the equipment and the people, but he w- they weren't so good at finding the gold. Where's the gold? How do we find it? So that's where that really uh, helped in that sense is, is that schooling really played a huge part. But again, like when you're in the field, you're figuring things out. You're kind of learning the geology. You're learning the way the, where the pay sits. You're learning how deep it is. You're learning how different materials respond to being processed through the plant. So uh, schooling only gets you so far. Uh, I always say to anyone coming out of school or anything is have an open mind because maybe you learn something in a textbook that doesn't apply to this scenario. Is not the same as what you learned. So always have an open mind, but definitely rely on your background. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I've experienced the same thing. It's, it's not the same as in the textbook when you get out there, but it sounds like you're, uh, it sounds like you had like a really unique position, like, uh, where, um, you know, with, with plaster mining, you were able to get out there and spend sort of part-time, you know, using the degree and, you know, you know, help, uh, you know, looking at the core samples and, you know, finding, uh, you know, the, um, the gold, but, uh, also able to operate the equipment. But if, if I'm hearing correctly, and I'm, I'm kind of guessing this, if you were to go to, uh, you know, one of the publicly traded companies, you probably wouldn't have been able to do both. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. They, that's, that's where like plaster mining and that sort of smaller scale mining difference differs from, you know, conventional publicly right. traded company companies mining. So that right. like working at earth and iron was, was the funnest, you know, experience I've had 
in, in the industry right. that aspired to because you get the balance, you get to find the gold and you get to run the equipment and there's, there's just variety in the workplace and it made it really exciting and jumping in big equipment is always exciting. I don't care who you are. You jumped in a, a D10 or a 365 or 390, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's genuinely exciting. It gets your blood flowing, at least for me. So right. uh, that was, yeah, having that balance and having the opportunity to do both was it's huge because you just become more, more of a valuable employee being able to fill in on the rock truck, being able to fill in on the cat, being able to solve problems with the skills you have. If you're building a road, building a plant, or designing an exploration program, okay, how are we going to take this drill rig from here to here? Well, we can build a road. What do we need to build a road? Okay, we need a D6. We need a 330 hoe. Uh, we need a rock truck because we need some fill over here. So you kind of become more uh, capable with the skill set of understanding what it takes from the equipment side, but also what it takes from the technical side for actually finding a, a gold deposit. So I, I'm realizing that I cut you off kind of halfway through the story. So, <laughs> you know, we, hey, we no, started at your birthday and you're, you, here you are, you're, uh, you know, you're up North and you know, you're, you're running a, a D10. What are, what are the next steps to get you to where you are uh, right now? So Earth and Iron was only for a season. I spent a season up there and then um, things kind of changed. I was looking for something else and um, they were kind of changing their, their, their mining style up there. I can, I can get into that, but we'll, we'll leave it for now. Um, So I kind of came, came back to the little Kelowna BC here in uh, Western Canada and uh, started up at the uh, Bruce Jack mine. So for everyone who knows BC, um, we've got a lot of gold mines out here, particularly underground and copper gold and copper. So Bruce Jack is uh, Northern BC, about a thousand kilometers North of Terrace. So pretty remote. And uh, they are underground high grade uh, gold with some silver uh, attributed as well to the ore. So started there just kind of as a production geologist. So I was again, using schooling, but the difference with working at earth and iron. And, and now at the time it was um, the owner of Bruce Jack was Pretium resources, but it's now Newcrest mining. Australian outfit. So the difference between exploration and production and geology is exploration. You're looking for the resource, the gold, the silver, the copper, the gold, or the, the coal, whatever it may be in production, you're more involved in, okay, now we've got the resource to find, how are we going to mine it? What equipment are we going to use? How are we going to, what's our mining style? You know, what is, and then taking that and, and what are we mining and what are we sending to the mill? Are we sending, 30,000 tons of one gram per ton gold or 1.1% copper, you kind of get more involved in the tracking the metrics and being and, and really working with a contractor or if it's in-house mining, the, the, the mining staff themselves and getting ore to the mill or waste to the waste dump or wherever it may be. So uh, started there. Underground mining is very cool. Um, I guess I skipped over a part. When I was in school, I spent five months out at uh, Red Lake Gold Mines. So out in Ontario. So if you know where Red Lake wow. is, Red Lake, Ontario. I do, yeah. Um, that's probably one of the most prolific districts in Canada in terms of gold. I think 27 million ounces came out of that, those two mines there. There's two main shafts, Campbell and um, Red Lake. So there's more wow. shafts now, but spent, spent some time there and, and kind of got exposed to underground mining. And I was like, this is really neat. Like this is a community of people that, no one knows about because it's underground. The footprint, the visual footprint is, is negligible compared to open pit. So 
Right. Kind of spent spent some time at uh, at, New, at Bruce Jack, uh, five years, and just just really built an appreciation for the mining community because you're involved in it, you're talking to the people, you're working in it, you get to see you know the daily struggles, the daily wins within the company, and it's it's a really it's a really good experience. Yeah, I would imagine you'd probably get pretty tight with uh, you know people that you're working with. You're going to be there five to seven months and work you know, all day, night shift, day shift, uh, you're kind yeah. of together all the time. Um, I, I had a question written down here about, uh, um, kind of on that remote acts aspect, what, what additional complexities are there, uh, that, you know, maybe people our our listeners aren't thinking about uh, having, uh, a, a mind so remote or to working remotely like, like this. Yeah, sure. Um, so modern day mining, just by nature of the deposits of minerals, these are usually occurring in very remote areas. This isn't like, oh, it's just west of Vancouver or just east of Vancouver. You know, these are all, all these, these mineral deposits, the big well-known um, resources are usually very remote just by the fact that all the easy ones were taken by in the early days. So a lot of the, the mines are, are quite remote. So that adds a lot of complexity. When you're going from, say you're, you're not a mine yet, when you're going to build a mine, the complexity becomes infrastructure. How do we get power? Do we have roads up there? Um, do we have internet and Wi-Fi and cell reception? You know, these right. all come into the factors of determining whether a deposit in ore body will actually become a mine. So in the case of Bruce Jack, and there's other uh, instances like in Yukon, there's, um, uh, gosh, um, Victoria Gold, they're a bit remote too. Uh, the oil sands isn't too remote because there's a lot of infrastructure up there. There's other instances in BC, like Redcrest Mine as well in northern BC. But being remote just adds to the cost of mining because you have to truck in fuel, you have to truck in food, you have to truck out your ore. You know, if, if in our case, we are a lot of free milling uh, gold at, at, at Bruce Jack, so we can recover it in Dore bars. We just pour bars on site, but some of our ore goes out by truck. And a lot of companies send their ore out by truck. So now you're mining the ore. And you're trucking it out and trucking it, trucking back empties and you're trucking in fuel and you're trucking in people and everything is, is reliant on good infrastructure, good power infrastructure, good road infrastructure. So um, a lot of these modern day deposits, you won't find them near big cities or metropolises. These are remote sites that, you know, add the complexity of logistics for people and equipment and supplies, materials. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, it's actually, it's, it's quite fascinating to see, think about the logistics to be able to pull this off. Um, somewhat related. I'm, I'm curious, what's, what's your favorite piece of uh, mining equipment? I have to go right back to the dozers. I think Yeah. I'd say D10. So I, I like D10 because obviously I had a, again, early experience on, on one, just kind of learning and running one, but they're just really nimble machines. They've got a lot of horsepower. They're really nimble compared to like a D11. I mean, D11s are pretty, pretty cool. They're big, big tractors, but not as nimble as a 10 in terms of working on site and transport. So a D10 is a nice blend of lots of horsepower, really nimble machine, very capable. And it's quite Mm -hmm. common to see them in all kinds of mining, uh, all kinds of mines as support equipment. Just a good size machine, really popular. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say, yeah, definitely 10. You just, you can do a lot with a 10. You'd be surprised. That's a, a great uh, 
Great description, uh, for sure. I haven't uh, been in either one of those, but I would love to someday. No, um, yeah, no, that's that's very cool. Thanks. Um, yeah, I I, I want to switch gears and, and ask you. So, tons of experience here. You know, lots of uh, you know education. Really cool story. Tell me about the marketing company. Um, what are you up to here? Tell me more. How did you get into the marketing company? Um, yeah, just would like to learn a little more. Sure. Yeah, I, I guess a, 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 you could say marketing company. I really focus on media production, but yep. again, then also dive into marketing in the sense of uh, social media uh, writing, uh, so blogs, magazine articles, writing for website content. But in terms of marketing, like I don't do websites, I don't do kind of SEO stuff at this time. I've really focused on heavy on getting out in the field trying to be trying to capture a story and talking with people and photography and videography. So I, I guess you could say media production is kind of my bread and butter, but kind of got started. Um, was working in mining and, and just, you know, you always take photos of your iPhone and you just share them with yourself. You kind of look at them once in a while. I was like, huh, saw a couple other people kind of posting. There was like this community of people on Instagram and, and LinkedIn that were posting a few images and stuff here. And I thought, well, Shucks, I got a cool story to share. To share. Look at all the stuff I get to, to see. Started sharing a few pictures, kind of did it for fun for a year, just traveled around just for, for by no means other than just pure interest. And then I was like, well, there's kind of a story to be shared here. Like no one's telling this and people don't appreciate construction or people don't appreciate mining, what it does for their daily lives. So, okay. And then kind of gave it a shot, approached some companies on, hey, like, could we help you tell your story through photography, through videography, and then help you get that message out on social media? And at first, there was some hesitation, especially from, from mining outfits. But as time passed, they start to see the value in it in terms of awareness, uh, recruitment, and, and just putting themselves out there to, to share their own story. Because there's a lot of great companies, in, in, especially in Canada, with fantastic stories generational companies that are in the family or just big corporations that do awesome projects that have an awesome impact on, uh, on society. So started getting into that and then really started kind of, I like to say kicking down some doors and saying, Hey, like we need to get the story out there. We need to recruit more people. We need to change society's perception on the industry. And by the industry, I mean, construction, how important is our infrastructure to making your daily life possible? How important is mining, modern day responsible mining, how important is that to providing the raw ingredients for your daily life, really? And there's a big disconnect between society and the mining industry, society and the construction industry, even demolition. that They don't understand, and rightfully so, because the industry's never taken time to share its story in a relatable way. So I've tried to really keep capitalizing on that that opportunity to share the story and, and get it out there for the better good of the companies and for society understanding uh you know the industry better i love that i uh we're all about you know sharing those stories and you know uh about a really really great group of people that are you know not super well represented at the moment so uh i'd yeah. love to hear about what you're doing there um i <clears throat> We've seen, uh, you know, seen you speaking in the past about how, um, you know, maybe mining is, uh, 
misrepresented. Um, could you speak a little bit more about that? Uh, I think you're kind of touching on it there, but would love to hear a little more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to, to add again to the last last question, I really focus on mining. That's my passion. You know, I still get out on construction sites and demo sites, but what really, when I really want to speak from the heart, it's about mining. It's because I've had such a family history and it's such a history myself and such an appreciation and passion for it. So I really like to, you know, focus on the mining industry, but society as a whole, um, if, if we were to, to jump back a decade or two, a lot of legacy mining, especially in BC, didn't have the same reclamation standards, same environmental standards as modern day mining. So like 2000s and onward does. So a lot of this, this legacy mining in BC and Canada wide has kind of tainted the society's perception of the industry purely because they see unreclaimed sites, uh, environmental like some sort of acid mine drainage or something from a site that the company went bankrupt. They didn't reclaim it properly because they weren't obligated to by the government. They didn't have bonds at the time for mining, like a mining company where they want to mine a, a deposit, they have to put up a bond and, and promise that they're going to contribute so much every year towards a reclamation fund and do X amount of, you know, whatever square kilometers, square meters of reclamation as they advance their project. But that wasn't the case back in, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, even up in, you know, 60s and 70s. So we have a lot of these legacy projects really distorting society's perception of what mining is. So that hasn't really helped with the fact that modern day mining is, is really struggling with getting a project. So a resource, you have just an ore body in the ground from discovery to a producing mine. You know, we all need the metals that these mines produce, whether it's for the electric vehicle shift, whether it's for just sustaining society at a baseline level, like we need aggregate, we need metallurgical coal, we need gold, we need silver, uranium, we need oil, all that plays into society really doesn't understand what the mining industry does. And I think that's because, A, because of the legacy mining distorting their perception of mining, and B, because mining companies in the past have typically hidden. They don't really like to put themselves out there and rightfully so, the public wasn't receptive to it. But what that's now created is these mining companies have hidden for so long and now they're kind of reeling back and going, whoa, whoa, no one understands us. Like we're actually really good stewards of the land. We're, we're really good employers. And here's the awesome raw materials we produce. Society has been like, well, where the heck have you been for the last 30, 40 years? Like we didn't know there was this over here, or this mine here, you did this, you do these great uh, reclamation efforts. So it's partly the industry's fault for not sharing its story. And it's also partly society's fault for not digging deeper into understanding the industry. We, I, I like to think and tend to think that we live in like a headline reading society. A lot of people read the first little paragraph of the news article and that's their kind of you know, their, their opinion of, of coal mining, their opinion of gold mining from there on out. So it's a combination of both. Society doesn't understand the industry because they haven't taken the time to, and mining hasn't explained themselves very well until now. They're kind of at this, this why in the road, fork in the road, whatever you want to, however you want to look at it as, okay, if we right. want to continue operating as an industry, we need to show our story because nowadays, this, what I call the, the social license to operate. So 
Mining companies have to put in permits, they have to put in bonds and everything to get their project off the ground into production. But now we're seeing this new um, finger of the, uh, the approval and permitting process called the social license to operate. So that's the public's opinion on the project. They now have a say in, we don't want a coal mine in the Rocky Mountains. We don't want a open pit gold mine east of Prince George or whatever it may be. They now have right. a, a weighted opinion in whether projects move forward. And it's, it started, it's actually affected quite a few projects. So the, it is now a, a problem. We need to educate people on the importance of mining. Here's the raw materials. Here's how important they are to your daily life. Here's where they're used. Here's how this mining company operates. They treat their people well. They're great stewards of the land. Here's the reclamation they do. You know, how... I always like to, to think of, of, of mining, it's really a temporary loose use of the land because from, it may be a long temporary use of the land, like 20 years over a mine life, but you have an open pit. And then at the end of mine life, the company's obligated and has set aside funding to reclaim that open pit. So what I look at it as it as is how different is a open pit mine or infrastructure to mine than a large city or a large solar farm? Mining is a temporary use of the land. Something like a big city or a solar farm is permanent. Like it's there. Like it's always going to be yep. there. Whereas mining, we can actually reclaim. We can put it back and we can do a better job putting it back than we did 20, 30, 40 years ago. So long, long kind of answer to your, your question. But at a base level, the industry hasn't shared itself enough for people to understand who they are and what they do, how they do it. And society hasn't taken the time to understand mining apart from reading a headline or reading a paragraph and a bullet point summary on uh, a mine incident or just someone's opinion. So that, uh, that was awesome insight, uh, Mac. I really enjoyed uh, kind of uh, listening and learning from you there. Um, I've got one more question uh, related. Uh, sure. Are, are there any, uh, or are there any, or is there maybe one uh, project that really stands out to you that really uh, was a cool project that, uh, um, you know, did a really great job of, you know, uh, reclamation or, you know, just something, you know, that was awe-inspiring to you? Oh, gosh, I'll give you a few. I, um, everything's exciting, really, because you just get the opportunity to meet new people see how a company's doing business, see how, what equipment they're using. There's always something neat to learn in every project, but the ones that have kind of stuck out in the past, uh, I'll start with like infrastructure, heavy civil. Um, there's one in Alberta that was, uh, the ring road. They're finishing off the ring road, uh, just Southwest of Calgary. That was cool because there's houses right adjacent to it. And then right adjacent to that, there's a 150 ton, 6015 excavator. How cool is that? You get up in the morning, you go on your, your patio to have coffee and there's 150 tons of cat yellow slinging dirt into uh, uh, rock trucks and whatnot. So that was, that was really cool. And it was just neat to see how much earth they had to move and how that then translates down to here's a fleet of equipment. Here's the schedule. Here's the people. Here's how we're going to do it and you know, mitigate impact to the surrounding area, mitigate dust, mitigate the noise level. They were, they were, they came in there and they're still building it now, but it was such a, a this beautiful orchestra of equipment working in symphony to move, which was in some cases, it looked like an entire hillside of, of earth to put this, this thread of highway through and complete the ring road. And I, I, I tie that with a recent one I visited in uh, also in Calgary, which is Springbank Dam. 
So Springbank Dam is a really neat one. Um, they are, so in 2013, Calgary had uh, a major flooding event. It was a combination of like a rain event in the Rockies and a snow melt, so rain on snow. And that just created this influx of water that the waterways typically don't see. I think it was like a one in 100 year flood or something like that. So the solution for the city was instead of flooding, letting the rivers flood the city, we'll just create a off-stream reservoir upstream um, to then hold that water and release it back into um, the river at a later date. So again, a huge project. I think it's four kilometers of diversion channel and then this massive earth dam that's going to form a natural uh, impounding area for the water. So just, wow. there's a lot of iron out there. It's a, it's a lot of dirt to move. It's complex engineering because they're building uh, a dam. They're also building uh, in-stream uh, damming structures to, in the case of a flood, they can close the dam on the river and then it diverts it into the reservoir. So these, oh, wow. these big projects for me are just exciting because you see the impact the blue collar industry has on society. And it's astounding. This is stuff that directly affects people's lives. It's important. Yes, we're spending tax dollars on it, but look how critical this is to making daily life possible for everyone else. Instead of Calgary flooding, now we've got just a reservoir of water, right? So those have been some of the infrastructure projects in in Alberta. Those have been some of the interesting ones. Uh, I'd say out west, Vancouver. I'm not sure if in kind of your guys' area, you have a lot of deep high-rise excavations um, out your way at all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's, sure. there's one in Vancouver. Uh, they're doing a deep one right now. So Bell Pacific excavating and showing uh, good friends and a client. Um, they're right now doing uh, the deepest one in Vancouver. So they're going down 133 feet vertically. So they excavate and shore as they go shore the walls up. And it's for, I think almost 500 feet of building to go the other way. So just to see the scale, like you're literally on main, I'm not, forget what street it is in Vancouver, but we'll say one of the main arteries in Vancouver. And then just to your left is like a vertical face into this massive hole. And right. just to, just to be building something like that and not disturb the general public to keep traffic going, to keep logistics of everything going, groceries and transport and everything and be building this massive building is, is, is astonishing. Like you have to go and see it and go, wow. There is no disturbance to the general public in this case. So as far as infrastructure, those have been really neat. Do you want, do you want some on mining too? A couple, couple stories on those? Sure, yeah. Uh, maybe one more on mining. That'd be great. Sure. Um, in terms of mining and, and reclamation, um, one of the ones, a recent one I just spent some time with, a company called Westmoreland Coal. So they have a uh, coal mine outside of um, Edson. So that's Western Alberta, just went to Edmonton. And um, what's really neat about them is they've taken a very practical approach to reclamation. They, it was a legacy mine owned by a, a different company at the time. They took over and they're still mining coal out there. Um, some of the best thermal coal in the market, may I add. Canada has a lot of, of great resources like that. But they've taken over and started to reclaim the legacy mining, taken ownership of it, not just leaving it like this isn't our problem. They're now spending money and going in and reclaiming that land in quite a uh, admirable fashion, actually sloping everything. All the old pit walls have been, all the old pits have been filled in. Everything's being sloped. Re, uh, there's grass, there's trees. They put natural debris on the ground. So really 
past five or 10 years, you won't be able to tell there was a mine there unless you knew about it, really. Because once reg- vegetation re- reestablishes, there's no really not much indication of uh, mining there. So I, I really like that story because they've taken ownership of past mining to make right what was once wrong by today's standards. Awesome examples, uh, Mac. I've really enjoyed, uh, you know, as I said, listening and learning, and uh, um, like just wow, what a what a resume, and uh, uh, you know, all the stuff you've seen out there. It just sounds uh, sounds so cool. I, I'd love to see some of this stuff. Um, it, how how can our uh, listeners uh, find you or get in touch with you? Um, you can, gosh, we got it multiple ways. You can find me on social media uh, at earthmovers underscore media. Uh, LinkedIn is just Mac Plovey and last name's T-L-O-B-I-E. So Mac Plovey. Uh, website, earthmoversmedia.com. Happy to chat. I think that's one of the things I enjoy most about this kind of line of work is just getting to meet people and learn different things. Again, always approach with an open mind. But yeah, reach out. I'm happy to, to connect with, with anyone. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again, Matt. Uh, Mac. Uh, we'll, uh, I'll definitely reach out next time I'm out West, uh, see if we can connect. Uh, this has been great. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. And anytime you're out here, we can get you out on some, some sites and see some big iron, even some big dirt. So happy to have you. Love it. Yeah. Thanks again. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Josh talking about the ins and outs of running a construction project for a hospital. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on social media or watch all of our episodes on YouTube. And please make sure to subscribe. All links are provided in the description of this episode. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back next time.